Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the podcast. This is a milestone of sorts for me and the good folks here at the podcast. Well, that would be me, myself, and I, because we have reached double figures in shows. As I've chronicled in my maiden voyage with Scott Chesney, this project was something I talked about and talked about and talked about, but never really thought I would get it off the ground. But here we are. While the podcast is mainly aimed at folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, it is really for anyone who wants to be inspired. The Quadcast is your 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. Before we get to today's special guest, I must first thank Adria D. Simone once again. Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation's vocational resource facilitator joined me last week and provided terrific answers and much needed information for those looking forward to getting into the workforce again. If you missed our conversation with one of the leaders in her field, you can find it and all of my other episodes on my website, which is www.quadcast.org. This show is available also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And now for today's program. I remember as a boy loving to watch football games with my wonderful father. Weekends in the fall and winter were chock full of them. On Saturday, it was college football, and on Sunday, it was the league where they play for pay. Watching football was about as far as it went for me as a kid, however. My friends all played the game, but it wasn't until my freshman year in high school that I tried out for and made the team. I still remember my first game. It was in Montclair against a very good team, and my coach wanted me to get that first hit out of the way, so he sent me back for a punt return early in the game. As you can imagine, I was full of emotions. I was pumped. I was eager. I was nervous and absolutely a bit scared out of my mind. As fate would have it, the punt sailed way out of bounds, so I didn't have to do anything. I played wide receiver and had very good hands, which in hindsight is funny because now I can't even open them. Unfortunately, a year later in a scrimmage at David Brearley High School in Kenilworth, I was hit from behind while outstretched for a pass and suffered whiplash, which incredibly and frighteningly left me paralyzed from head to toe for a few minutes. Luckily, I was able to regain full motion and function in all of my limbs, but needless to say, it ended my football career. It is an amazing game, but it is also a very dangerous one. Because rather large and physically fit men traveling at amazingly high rates of speed are the ones playing it, their collisions are high impact, to say the least. That unfortunately raises the specter of spinal cord injuries. I was 10 years old in 1978 when Daryl Stingley broke his neck following a hit by Jack Tatum. Two weeks into my rehab stint at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in 1992, New York Jets defensive end Dennis Byrd injured his spine when he collided with teammate Scott Mercero. This one I remember vividly because my fellow inpatients and I wondered if he would be coming to Kessler. Sadly, there would be others, such as Detroit Lions guard Mike Utley, Penn State freshman cornerback Adam Taliaferro, and Buffalo Bills tight end Kevin Everett, to name a few. Each and every time one of these tragic events would happen, my phone would ring off the wall. My friends had to check in with me as if I was some resident spinal cord injury authority. 
Unfortunately, this scenario happened again one Saturday afternoon in October of 2010. I was out of the house at a family function and had forgotten my cell phone, so when I got home, there were well over a dozen messages, all asking the same question. Were you watching the Rutgers Army game? Why, I thought, it wasn't like it was Alabama or LSU or something. Then I put on the television and saw the sad news that Eric Legrand had suffered some sort of a spinal cord injury, and my heart sank. I remember not wanting to return any of the messages or watch football for the remainder of the day. It brought back tough memories from my fall and made me feel for what he and his family were suddenly dealing with. I knew that Eric was going to be rehabbing at the Great Kessler, and so I was heartened knowing that he was going to get the best care and therapy that he could. Fast forward a year or two later, and while I was getting a tune-up in outpatient therapy, Eric entered the gym with his mom. He, too, was going to have therapy at the same time as me. I did not approach him for quite some time. Who was I to bother him anyway? Plus, he was working extremely hard. What I did notice and admire was the presence of two things in particular, his easy smile and his number one cheerleader, his mom. They were both there each and every time I saw him. I finally got the nerve to introduce myself one afternoon, and we have been friends for years now. When we return from this quick timeout, Eric Legrand joins me to discuss what living with a spinal cord injury is like, where his uber-positive attitude comes from, the annual A Walk to Believe event, family, and of course, football. I'm thrilled you could join us. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin, the radio play-by-play announcer for the New Jersey Devils. If you like what you're hearing from John McAlevey on today's show, then you'll want to check out more Sports Now's podcast. You know, John's a huge sports fan, and each week he joins me and Steve Titchener for a spirited roundtable discussion on what's going on in sports on both sides of the Hudson. Our podcast can be heard at moresportsnow.com, but also on iTunes, Spotify, and iHeart. I hope you'll check us out. And we are back on the Quadcast, and it is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the show Eric Legrand. Eric, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely, John. Thank you for having me. You know, I have been waiting to have you on because I wanted to get a few of these under my belt before actually speaking with you. So this being episode number 10, I figured we are well oiled up and ready for the task. I'm ready to go. I know you've been polishing your your skills over there and been doing a great job, so I'm happy to be on. Thank you, thank you. So why don't we start at the top? As we all know, our spinal cord injuries do not define who we were and who we are. So for those people out there that might not know too much about you, please tell us where you grew up and what some of the things you did as a young man. I'm from Avenel, New Jersey. It's a part of Woodbridge Township. I've been here since I since I grew up. Only time I did live in. Really, Woodbridge was after, well, during college, a little bit after my injury, but then I came back home. And, uh, yeah, I grew up in a town that's very diverse. You got a, you got a mixture of everything here, but also very hardworking and tough. And I grew up playing a lot of sports around my neighborhood and going out, riding my bike, coming back late at night, you know, things like that. It was very fun, the old school type, you go to the park and create your own games. Play football during football season, basketball during basketball season, baseball during baseball season. And that's where I really, you know, got my toughness and, you know, my skills from always playing 
with my friends in the neighborhood. Absolutely. And playing with the older kids too, right? That always toughened you up. <laughs> oh, yeah. we. That, I was definitely one of the young ones, but I was always bigger than the people my age. So I kind of fit in with the older ones. But yeah, I had to, definitely had to make sure I was tough enough to hang out with them. Aside from football, Eric, what were some other sports that you played? And, you know, who were some of your favorite teams and players that you modeled yourself after? Oh, I, I was a, I'm still a diehard baseball fan and also basketball. I played baseball and basketball. But baseball, honestly, I thought that was going to be going to be my calling until I got offered a scholarship for football my freshman year. But I was a pitcher center fielder for baseball. My favorite player was Bernie Williams on the New York Yankees. That's my favorite team. And um, yeah, it's it, that, I thought that was my calling. I'm a diehard Denver Broncos fan because of Terrell Davis growing up as a kid. I loved his, the way he ran the footballs and running back growing up. And I loved his number. I wore that, and then I changed it to 52 when I got to college for Ray Lewis. But, um, yeah, baseball is on sport, and basketball is a big Kevin Garnett fan. Okay. I really got into basketball later on, like, you know, my high school years. That's when I really started to follow it more. But I played it. I was growing up as a kid. How intimidating must it have been to have Eric LeGrand standing six feet, 60 feet, six inches from you on the pitcher's yeah. mound? I mean, good grief. What a big guy coming at you. Yeah, at that time, when I, my freshman year in high school, I was about 6'2", six, six, two, 205, throwing that ball in. Depending on the day, I was throwing either gas down the middle or gas coming at your head. Depending <laughs> on the day, so... I, I always love my baseball team. We almost made it to the Little League World Series. We were one game away, lost in the championship in the sectionals. Oh, heartbreaker. But, um, yeah, baseball was always so fun. And I was just, only regret I ever have is not playing all three sports all four years in high school. Mm-hmm. Well, you have, don't have to wait much longer. The Yankees, your beloved Yankees, kick off the season tonight, uh, hopefully weather permitting, uh, against the Nationals down in Washington. So baseball is back. We'll have some sports to watch. I finally got something to watch. You know, we've been dying for a lot of sports. I'm about to catch, catch myself the other day, watching the NBA preseason games, all happy, smiling. You know, ear to ear because I'm like, there's actually live sports going on right now, even if it's preseason. So I'm excited to see my Yankees get kicked off on the 60 game season and see where it takes us. And we get that to, I know it's going to be an asterisk next to this, but hey. I don't care. Ring's a ring if we can get to 28. We are, serious, yeah, we are certainly ready to watch something on TV. How about Eric as a young person? Did you have a family member or a coach maybe that really inspired you to be better than maybe you thought you could be as an athlete? Yeah, absolutely. My pop, when I played Pop Warner football, you know, I was the biggest, fastest, strongest one out there and whatnot. And as we got older, you know, we started playing more teams that were, you know, more competitive and, it wasn't just take the ball and run. We had to show skill. We had to sacrifice a block. My guy by the name of Jack Nevins, we got, I called him Coach Jack. Wow, man, I'll never forget the game. Where I just, I didn't like the block. I just wanted the ball. I remember he pulled me off to the sideline in one of my games and said, if you don't block anybody, I am not giving you the ball for the rest of the game. <laughs> and he held his word. I missed the block the next time. And I didn't touch the ball again until like the fourth quarter of the game. And I knew how serious he was, and he was always strict on me. Push, you know, he worked. He worked me. He knew exactly how to get me to go. Made me tough. Made me strong. Even when I thought I knew everything in the world when I was in eighth grade, I thought that uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I look back on it now. I'm like, wow, the guidance that he gave me at that young age was truly amazing. The lessons we learn as young people, right? It it really is. It's just being able to deal with you know constructive criticism, even when the coach is in your face yelling and dealing with it. 
at first I didn't know how to handle when you're in eighth grade, you know, you're 12, 13 years old. I'm like, what is it? Like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> as you get older, you realize, wow, he was setting me up for the next level and then the next level after that. Absolutely. And that's something you remember to this day, which is great. And mm-hmm. it, uh, it sets your course. Um, how about Eric, when the prospect of playing major division one football really came onto your radar screen. First of all, how much was the recruiting process? And on the flip side, how nerve-wracking and stressful was it? Honestly, it wasn't too stressful for me. I enjoyed it, you know. I got noticed my freshman year after we played our crosstown rivalries. Uh, you no know, coach was coming during the springtime. His name was Joe Susan, who's actually back at Rutgers now. He was checking on our crosstown rivalry, Shamar Graves, checking out his film at the time. He was a junior, I was a freshman. And as he turned on the film and watched the first three plays, I made the first three tackles. I got to play my last three games on varsity on uh, on varsity as a freshman. And um, they saw me make those plays. He goes, who's that? And the coach was like, yeah, he's only a freshman. And Coach Susan came right over to my school after that, and he wrote out a written scholarship to my coach saying that we'll be all out of the state. When he's a junior, we're offering Eric LeGrin a scholarship. We're offering him out as a freshman, but it doesn't become official until he's a junior. And I got my first scholarship offer, and I, it's crazy. I remember texting back and forth with Urban Meyer, who was at Florida at the time before he won the national championships. Charlie Weiss was at Notre Dame, going to visit out there. Uh, Al Groh was my first uh, first recruiting coach down in Virginia. You know, Iowa, just, you get the boxes full of letters from all over the country. It was just such a cool process. And I got to visit Maryland, Rutgers, Notre Dame and Virginia before I made my decision at one point I was going to go down to uh, to Florida and visit Miami, Florida and Florida State but I committed to Rutgers. Wow, this is a veritable who's who of college coaches and major yeah. Division One programs. Wow. Can you can you share with us, do you have maybe one really cool recruiting story about something that, that was either funnier that something that went haywire or something yeah. like that? Yeah, actually when I went down to Maryland I remember I got to, I got to go on campus I'm like I check it out, check it out. Then we go in the weight room. And guess who's look, work, working out in the weight room when I'm there? This is around, I don't know if you'll guess this at the time, if you'll remember it, but he was, this is around 2005, 2006. And it was Vernon Davis. Oh, he wow. Looked, he looked like an action figure, straight statue. <laughs> Cut up, shredded up. So I remember he was, he was power cleaning at the time with no shirt on in front of all the recruits and I. I'm the one recruit that goes up to the strength and conditioning coach. I said, hey, if I come here, will I look like that? And of course, the recruiting coach goes, damn straight, you will. <laughs> and uh, I, know, you know, I realized you know, how much genetics actually played into that as well. I was just in shock as a 14, 15-year-old you know, kid watching Vernon Davis, who I believe was a senior, he was either junior or senior at the time, right for senior year. Just the way that he looked and how much he was lifted, I'm like, wow, this is big time college football. Yeah. Some guys just hit the genetics lottery, right, Eric? Yeah. I will say my genetics, I, I'm, I'm very definitely blessed in that area, but he's just on a different level when it comes to looking like a statue. No doubt. No doubt. Now, it turned out to be Rutgers was your final decision. First of all, why was that the best fit for you? And then please, if you could tell yeah. us about Coach Chiano, the recruiter, the head coach, yeah. and the man. I best fit because one, it's 20 minutes away from my house. I go 20 minutes south from my house. I'm out. I'm on campus. I can come and go when I want. I love, I love when my family comes and sees me. My my friends, 
and I know I was going to get a great education on the Rutgers. Because you got to remember, at the time I was getting recruited, 2006, when they upset Louisville, I was a junior. I got to storm the field that game. 2007, they upset number two, South Florida. I stormed the field again. Ray Rice, you know, Brian Leonard, Mike Teal, Kenny Britt, you know, Courtney Green, Jason, Devin McCourty. Those are all the guys when we go, when I went up to Rutgers, those are the guys that are telling us to come here. And you look at, you know, some of the careers that they have in the NFL, Anthony Davis, those guys, I'm like, where am I going? I'm not going anywhere else besides here. Like, are you kidding me? Right here in New Jersey, and Coach Shiano's pitching was always, let's be the first to win a national championship. Let's be win the bees. Let's be the first to do it. You're a recruiting class at Rutgers. And he told me one thing which really stuck to me in the show after my injury. He said, when I recruit you, I treat all my players like they're, they're my son. I'm tough on you. I'm going to work your butt off. But I'll always be there and I've got your back in. I mean, there was no better example from that, you know, being said after my injury. So, you know, he kept his word with me. And I told the day that I committed to him, I got a funny story. Yeah. I said, hey, hey coach, I, thought, I, I said, I think I want to commit to you. He goes, you think you want to commit? He goes, men give their word. If you give your word, then you stay by your word. So I don't know what the think means. I said, uh, coach, let me call you back. I got to call my mom. <laughs> so I called my mom and I told her I want to commit to Rutgers. She was all happy, of course, because it was right here. So I called Coach Shannon back on my coach. I'm committing to Rutgers University. And then he was all excited and put everyone on the phone. He goes, you can't go back on your word now. Once you give your word, you, know, you keep that. And I was like, you're right, coach. Men keep their word. My and word is like, bond, wow. right? Exactly. Oh, exactly. wow. And he sold you on uh, staying home and being a Garden Stater and putting a national championship together. It, it really, you really did, you know. And at, at that time, it wasn't like Rutgers was in a down period. It was the best time I, that Rutgers probably has ever been to. Like, I believe they were 11 and 2 that the 2006 season or whatever it was. And then the following year, upsetting number two, South Florida. And so, like, you're a recruit storming the field two years in a row. Your junior and senior year, it's like, where am I going? Come on now. So you were there for pandemonium in Piscataway, right? I was right out there, and I thought <laughs> I was going to die out there. Uh, Lost all my friends. Sure. Had to meet them over by the, by the tunnel, but it was amazing. Yeah. Well, tell us about your playing career. First of all, where was the coolest place that you played? One in which, you know, you when you're walking through the tunnel and you're looking around thinking, wow, this is big time mm-hmm. college football. Yeah, so I played great. I got mixed around. I got to play my freshman year, but came in there as a middle linebacker. I moved to nose guard, bounced to the defensive end middle of the season, then the fullback in the middle of the season, and back to defensive end, and then nose guard at the end of the year. It was a whirlwind of a freshman year for me. I thought I lost a little bit of the game, but then I realized after having a meeting with Coach and Sam, him telling me, saying, you know, love is sacrifice. Sometimes you have to sacrifice for the team, for the greater good. I want to put you out there in a situation where I didn't think you could succeed. And when he said that to me, I'm like, you know what? You're right. Love is sacrifice. Not everything's going to go your way in your plan. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices for the betterment of everyone, of the team. And I guess the one of the coolest places, I would actually say one of the most intimidating places was uh, Heinz Field playing Pitt with Sean McCoy that year. Oh, every time it was like third down, I was on offense that year uh, for that game playing fullback. They would have had the, the Heinz catch-up. They would fill it up and be like, and then they'll like pour out and spill to make like the sound effects. I'm like, geez, I'm playing in the Pittsburgh Steelers Stadium right now. Yeah. So Sean McCoy is going off on us, but we are still, you know, winning that game and whatnot. Shady, right? Bro. Yeah, you know, you Shady think of the people McCoy. that you play, 
be, he got to play versus Russell Wilson down in Alabama at the at the Papa John's Bowl at the time. You know, I played mm-hmm. against Travis Kelsey when that Cincinnati when I was at home versus Cincinnati and his brother Jason Kelsey. You know, when you look back on all the names that you actually played it and you played against that played with, like wow, look at these guys with long careers in NFL and whatnot. That's right. That's right. What, Eric, would you say was your proudest moment on the field as a Rutgers Scarlet Knight? Oh, my proudest moment on the field as a Rutgers Scarlet Knight was after the, the, our bowl game down in uh, Tampa. I, I had a great game. I remember I had a sack in the game versus UCF, and we ended up winning that game and winning our bowl, second bowl game in a row. And you know, I had a great moment on the field, but I got to go in the locker room and lead the chant at the end of the at the end of the game and that was my thing. I was always the hype man. And Coach Shannon called me out and wanted me to lead everyone. And after having a great game that game and having a sack, a bunch of tackles, I had to lead the team with the chant. That night was special. That was a special night. I think I've seen that. Is that something that you've oh, put yeah. out on Twitter? Yes you have. That video is put out is what it's went all over the place. That's so, legendary. Yeah. That night was special, I'll tell you that. That is some terrific stuff, and it's glad that uh, I'm glad that you have that for prosperity. That you can uh, always look back at that and and share that with folks who who didn't have a chance to watch you play. Um, exactly. How about Eric? Exactly. How about unfortunately? Let's let's move to October 16, 2010. Um, you know, take us through that day that that changed your life and your family's life, and what were some of your initial thoughts and memories in the immediate aftermath of your injury. Yeah, that day was same routine this time we're playing at MetLife Stadium, which just opened up. So played in another NFL stadium. You know, I got to play in a few of them when I was at Rutgers, and it was awesome. I remember talking to the camera before the before the game, saying, "We're out here at the New Jersey Stadium. We're ready to go. We're going to keep on chopping all day long." And yeah, it was a battle. We were going back and forth, and we were losing, and we came back and tied the game. And it's the fourth quarter, five minutes left, and I'm running down the field, just wanting to make a Big play for my team, and uh, guy's body gets twisted up in the air. I put my head down, thinking it wasn't going to be the tackle, and it ended up hitting him straight on. And I remember fracturing my neck, and my teammate Deron Harmon, you know, three-time Super Bowl champion. Now, I remember comes running over to me to cheer, and I can't move, and my eyes are bulging out of my head. And now they start calling over to the trainers, and trainers get to me, ask me if it's my head or your neck, and I'm just saying, I can't breathe. I'm like, can you feel this? Can you feel that? And I'm like, I can't breathe. And from there, just, yeah, it was it was, it was rough. I didn't know what my life was going to take me, if I was going to die on that football field. And, you know, my, obviously my career was over there. But at that time, all I was worrying about was just breathing and staying alive. And at one point, I closed my eyes thinking that my life was over. Yeah. You know, Eric, it brings back memories for me. Um, when I had my fall down my steps, I remember I was completely paralyzed from head to toe at the bottom and I, I could hardly breathe either. I heard my father coming down the stairs and I, I just like yourself, I whispered to him, please, you know, don't touch me. Don't touch me because you could make it worse. You know, I wanted to let the, the first aid folks come. Um, but uh, you know, just bring hearing your story brings back mine, and it's I still get that uneasy feeling. Also, did you feel I just felt complete numbness at the time? I didn't feel anything. I remember people asking me, Did it hurt you? I'm like, I you think about it, I did break my neck and stuff. It probably, if I could feel it, the pain would probably be excruciating, but I couldn't feel anything. The last thing I remember was my heels hitting the ground 
after I went, they went stiff like a board, and that's the last thing I felt. Yeah, yeah. Eric, do you think the fact that you were a Division One athlete and in peak physical condition at the time, do you think that that helped you with attacking this new life in therapy? One million percent to the tenth power. Yes, absolutely. Being an athlete, having that drive, having that willpower, having the faith, just this determination definitely helped me. Like I was used to the grind. I was used to working out, going to the gym every single day, working hard for a goal. I always say for someone who's never played sports and never really worked out after having an injury now being put in therapy every single day for hours a day, it's tough on them. But for me, that was my life. I was in my little bubble at Rutgers. I didn't even really know what the outside world was, but it was, you know, handling my responsibilities. All right, I got breakfast at this time, then I got to go to class, and I got to practice. Wait, I'm session, study hall every single day. So I was used to a routine and what I had to do and how do I had to how I had to attack it and having the right mindset to go out and attack it. So being an athlete, especially at the Division One level, psh, without it, I'm not going to say I had an advantage, but it helped me get through that for sure. Tell people out there that, that don't know too much about what physical and occupational therapy is like. These folks that work in that field, our PTs and OTs, they're no joke. Now, who is tougher on you uh, in, in the weight room? Would it be your coaches at Rutgers or sometimes these PTs and OTs, right? Yeah, hey, those PTs and OTs will definitely work, they'll definitely work your hard and they're pushing. Only thing different is I'm not getting screamed or cursed at. I'm in therapy like I am. I practice <laughs> But it is that they they work you hard, and then especially they know you know who you know my mindset already because they know how they can push me maybe harder than they would push some middle aged woman who's never worked out before. You know what I mean? Yes. They know that if I'm slacking off, that they got they. I'll never forget one day I was walking on the treadmill and I had went out the night before and enjoyed myself, and I was like, I was like falling asleep in a harness, and Buffy straight up yeah they said, every. I will stop this treadmill right now if you don't wake up and pay attention to what you're doing. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I was like, yep, I'm up. I'm Buffy up. is no joke, right? I'll never forget that. Made my heart drop and everything. I'm like, I'm like, yeah. So holding my health, she was holding me accountable, and I appreciate that because every, every now and then you need somebody to kick you in your butt. You sure do. Now, how about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation? I love the place. I'm coming up on 28 years now. It'll be this August for for my injury. So uh, I was an inpatient there and have been uh, getting tune-ups in outpatient therapy for many, many moons now. So tell me about your affiliation as an inpatient and an outpatient and how important has their rehab from there uh, and the friendships that you've made, how has that impacted your life? Oh, it's impacted me, you know, immensely because, you know, I was there for five months as an inpatient and those hallways did get long some days. I'm like, wow, you know, it's the same thing over and over, but they worked me out. They got me off the ventilator. They got me to be able to breathe on my own, off the feeding tube, eating, eating on my own and getting me strength enough, you know, to be able to go out now and go home and to adjust with new life and then go to outpatient. That was another level, man, get my, be able to, you know, sit on my own be able to control my, my, hit my back, you know, get my back muscle strong. Walking on that treadmill for, for five, for 500 sessions on that treadmill, keeping my body strong and not, you know, no muscle atrophy, uh, too much of it. And you know, it's just that family over there, they're just truly something special. And 
they helped me for just so many years. You know, I haven't been there since everything started with COVID-19, but I plan on joining them again, you know, soon once we get on the other side of this and things just look, you know, more more positive and less grim. And then also, you know, the, the relationships. I've met so many people from coming through there that have come to my events. I've been to their events. They support me. I support them. Friendships that just, uh, you know, everlasting. It's truly amazing because people come from all different walks of life. And you get to hear their stories and where they've been and what they did before their injury, when they are after their injury. It's just a great community. You know, Eric, you hit the word right um, that I would have used as well. Family. Uh, mm-hmm. They become family. I mean, the, as you mm-hmm. said, they come to your events. They're there cheering you on. Uh, they're always there in the background. I credit them for putting me back together and having grown up right you know, one town away from Kessler, uh, as an athlete, my school buses, the team buses, we used to drive by the place all the time. And I would, you know, I would look at the sign and I would look up the hill and I really didn't know what went on up there and hoping that I would never would have to go. But, uh, the fact that, uh, we were able to go was, uh, was a thrill to both of us that we they were able to help us out. And, uh, become family members down the road. Now, I know you mentioned uh, COVID-19. This pandemic has been unbelievable. It's disrupted the world and it's taken so many lives. How has it affected your daily life? Oh, I guess good and bad ways. You know, the bad ways, I would say, not being able to see my friends, not being able to host my events, you know, losing out on you know, speaking engagements and all these different you know, things like that, because all everything I do is involved with people. And, you know, we having our secondary complications, I always have to watch out. So it's definitely affected me in that way. That's the bad. The good, though, has been able to let me be innovative, thinking creative ideas on projects that I'm working on for the future. And I'll be very excited to share, you know, very soon and whatnot. But um, been able to get on some audio books, really, you know, find ways to adapt and try to make a difference in this world. And understanding, you know, there were just more about understanding on everything that's going on with the social injustice that's been taking place and educating people while also being educated myself. You know, it's just, it's good and bad to this, but my whole plan is when this is all over and we look back on it, I'm coming out better. I'm not coming out behind and trying to catch up. That's a really good way to look at it. Taking advantage of a tough situation and trying to make the most of it. Exactly. This is yeah. a negative situation, negative time, and that's the thing. Sometimes people don't have the strength to endure such a long period of time. Like, all right, you tell somebody, all right, you can't see people for a week, and then it's a month, and then you know, multiple months, and people start losing their mind. But this is where the mindset comes in when you do things that when you have to do things in life that you don't want to do, and you strengthen your mind that way. It builds you up and prepares you for situations like this. Things aren't where I, where I wish they would be right now, but I know the things I need to do in order to keep safe, but I'm also going to keep myself, my mind stimulated and motivated and driven to do other things. Uh, Eric, the, the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, how did you become involved with them? They were, they were there from the very beginning. They you know, always would reach out to me and just whatever I ever needed, they were there. And it's funny because as I didn't know who Christopher Reeve was. <laughs> I remember when I decided to make a foundation, I was like, Mom, who are those Christopher and Dana Reeve people? My mom's like, you don't know who Christopher Reeve is? I'm like, am I supposed to? <laughs> she goes, she goes, uh, the original Superman back in the 70s and 80s movies. And I'm like, Mom, 
I was born in 1990. I'm sorry. I just, I don't remember. That's right. It's before your time. And, yeah, before my time. And then I, I researched some. I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I should know who this is. Holy place. This is crazy. So I researched them, and then everything that they did, I said, you know what? It's the perfect combination. We created Team LeGrand to perform up 2013, and we raised close to $2 million since its inception. So I'm uh, very happy about that. I have to tell you a quick story. I was an outpatient the day that they were bringing Christopher Reeve into Kessler, and this is crazy, Eric. There were helicopters, multiple helicopters flying over the building. There were paparazzi... Uh They were paparazzi in tree stands in the back uh, in the woods. Everybody was trying to get that first picture of Superman in a wheelchair. It was awful. And and I just fell for the man. Yeah. I mean, talk about, uh, you know, what he had to go through and and at such a vulnerable time in his life. It was uh, it was really rough. But I'm so glad that you were able to put that together for with them. And is this where all uh, is this where the A Walk to Believe stemmed from? Was that them that helped you come up with the idea? Now, Walk to Believe actually started before that, before I even had the foundation of this, sorry, with a lady by the name of Arlene Gonzalez who came to visit me at that patient. Didn't know who I was, didn't know a thing about football. Heard my story on the news, and she had two sons, and she fell for my mom and I. And somehow she finagled her way up to my room, and we started a relationship, and she said, I want to do something. And you hear that from so many people, I want to do something, I want to do this, I want to do that. Arlene, if you know anything about Arlene, She's going to find a way. She's going to make it happen. And she went and met with the Rutgers Athletic Department. And everyone said, how can we, what can I do? What can we hold that? They started talking about a walk. And she said, let's create a 5K walk. And she's been hitting the ground since 2011. I, one year, the second year, I wasn't even able to make it because I was getting a ward in L.A. I wasn't even there. It was crazy. I couldn't even be there for the walk. But that was year two. After that, though, it just took off in year after year after year. It was growing. And then this year was year 10, and we had to get innovative. We created a virtual walk, and we raised $190,000, the most we ever raised, 1,500 participants, over 1,000 donations, all 50 states and the two U.S. territories that are participants. In ten different countries, absolutely amazing. That is amazing. And are, are plans on for year number 11? Absolutely. We're going to make a special again and try to get more and more countries involved and just make it make it make it special. I'm not, we're gonna do it in person. We're also gonna open up virtually and get people all around the world to participate because after watching this year, wow, it was special. No doubt. Eric, what is the next big thing you are working on or working towards? Got a few projects I told you I can't can't bring them out yet. But just know I am cooking in the oven on multiple projects that I'm really excited to bring out to the market very, very soon, and I'm working with the foundation. We're going to have a yoga event coming up. Yep, just the first time you guys are hearing that. This is Marky Calendars on August 15th. Team LeGrand is going to have a yoga event in person and virtually as well, so get ready for that. Oh, yoga. I'm going to have to partake in that. My my yeah, friend Karen Baig at, at, up at Kessler yes, is there. Yes. Yeah, she's the yoga girl, and she's been telling me, John, you can do it. You can do yoga. And I'm like, Karen, I can hardly bend. What are you talking about? She said, anybody. She said, if you can breathe, you can do yoga. She bent me like a pretzel multiple times at Kessler, <laughs> so. Yes. Yes, you can. Oh, wow. Eric, I know that there is a certain someone that has been with you every step of the way. Please take a moment to tell us all about your amazing mother and what she's done for you. Uh, Mama Dukes, 
where would I be without her, you know, from sacrificing, you know, not even working and just quitting her job to learn how to take care of me in my situation and sleeping on a pull-out cot that killed her back for five months up at Kessler to now running me from this engagement to that one, this event to another, you know, taking care of all the behind-the-scenes stuff, my insurance and medication and running the household, you know. I don't know where I would be without my mom, and she's just special to me, you know. She always forgets that I am about to be 30 years old, and sometimes tries to treat me like a little, little kid, and I got to let her know that, hey, <laughs> hey, just because I'm in the chair, you know, I'm still about to be 30. I'm a grown man, all right? And we go back and forth at each other about 35 times a day, and then five minutes later, it's like nothing ever happened. We're back to, you know, doing what we have to do. It's truly amazing. I don't know where I'll be without my mom. She's terrific. I've had the chance to meet her on numerous occasions. And uh, as someone that still lives with their mom, like I do, and I'll be, uh, I'm 52 and I, I hear you with going back and forth. You know, I try to tell my mom the same thing, but you know, hats off to them. I love my mom as you will love yours. And where would we be without them? Can't thank them enough. That is for us. Where would we be without, without that unconditional love? Eric, one thing I like to ask all of uh, my guests uh, is a question that I, you know, I posed to myself a long time ago, and I know what my answer is. But if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied again, what is the first thing that you would do? Probably run out of my house butt naked. (laughs) 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 I would definitely want. I want to travel. I would love to go to like Italy. I have a friend that lives out there now and like see the Coliseum see the world but the main thing I really want to do is go back to MetLife Stadium and lay back down on that 25 yard line and just run off that field again and walk off that field and just say I finished that last play and you know that's a goal that's a dream of mine and gonna control what I can control and put everything else in God's hands Okay, with that, you bring up football again. Let's talk a little bit about football. First of all, do you think there will be a college football season and a pro season? And if so, what do you expect from your Scarlet Knights in uh, the second go-round with Coach Chiano? I mean, I think there has to be some sort of season, whether it's in the fall or the spring. You know, there's just so much money to be lost if there's not. And I don't know if universities can take that 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 type of loss of revenue, but... um. I'm excited for Cociano. I'm telling you, I know he didn't get to have a spring ball, which is well unfortunate, but I know that he was working these guys through these virtual meetings, and I know now that you're back on campus, and you're not seeing a lot of videos. No one's posting a lot of stuff, but they are working there, grinding, and we're going to see a different team that goes out there on the field. They're going to be they're detail-oriented. Their attention to detail is going to be on point. Yes, they'll make mistakes. They'll still have some struggles. But you're going to see a tough, hard-nosed, fighting, grinding all the way to the end, gritty team that comes out of the Rutgers Fall Nights. And when you see them on the schedule now, it won't be like, oh, yeah, we got them. This will be easy because come back, well, we better be, you know, we better, we better, you know, you know, gear up and load up. It's going to be, a, it's going to be a battle, even though, you know, they might not be the strongest and the, and the biggest yet and the fastest. They're going to be the toughest ones. You'll see. You'll see. I know he's recruiting really well. I mean, he's off to a oh, great yeah. start. They've 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 knocked off some really good players, especially some of the top players in New Jersey. So that's something uh, to keep in mind looking forward. Oh my God! Is and then to see how he develops. And we know that Coach Chiano can develop NFL talent. You know, his record shows it. And where he's coached, who he's coached, 
and whatnot. People believe in him. And when you told the way that he's how he goes in the room, as a man shakes your hand, looks you in the eye, and talks to you to prove with the passion that he has and what he truly believes in. As a kid, I don't know how you tell him no. Yeah. And when he and then tell and when he tells you his vision and how you can be a part of it, he's dead serious and I think that's how you believe in him. What are your plans, Eric? Have you decided whether or not you're going to be uh, back in the booth calling games on radio? Yeah, I, I would love to. I love doing that. Uh, I, we have to figure out a way, you know, whether it's with a ma- with a mask, you know, that I've been wearing them. That's what I. That's all we have to do. We have to protect each other and protect ourselves with a mask. So, I would love to be in the booth with Chris and Ray Ray and our guys up there, you know. So we'll see if we can make that happen. But um. Yeah, so right now, I really want to be a part of this stuff. That would be great. And I know my colleagues, uh, Matt Lachlan and Steve Titchener at moresportsnow.com, were revved up to have you back for another season of RU Review. We're looking forward to uh, to talking football instead of all this hypotheticals. We'll get some, some games on the actual field, right? Exactly. And we, do, we need some more sports in our life, as you said. Starting tonight with the Yankees, but still just going forward. No we doubt. More sports. Absolutely. Well, Eric, I want to thank you again for coming on and sharing your ideas, your story, and your insights with me and us. And I, I look forward to the day when we're back in the gym without masks or worry of contracting this COVID 19. And I also cannot wait to be with you in person for year 11 of your Walk to Believe. It's going to be special. I can't wait as well. It is. And on behalf of the spinal cord injured community, I want to salute you and thank you for raising not only much needed awareness, but also money to help further the fight for a cure for paralysis. Keep up the good work, my friend. And please give my best to your mom. Will do, my guy. You take care. And there you have it. Episode number 10 of the Quancast is in the books. Special thanks to my friend Eric Legrand, who continues to inspire me and everyone around him for being here. Now, as of now, I do not have anyone booked for next week. Is there someone you would like to hear from? If so, give me a shout. You can reach me through my website, which again is www.quadcast.org. If a guest does not develop, what I might just do is break out the Speedos and head for the Jersey Shore. Just kidding about the Speedos. Job well done, Chris Parapesco at Sound Lounge in New York City. I appreciate your expertise, my friend. Once again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care about no wheelchair. I got so much left.